Hello, dear friends. Greetings in Jesus. Turn with me, please, to the book of Genesis, chapter 12, the 12th chapter of the book of Genesis. In the original Hebrew canon, Genesis is called Breshit, Breshit, literally, in the beginning. Chapter 12, verse 1, we read, Now the Lord said to Abram, not yet called Abraham, Abram, Go forth from your country, from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all of the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was seventy-five years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai, which means my princess, took Sarai his wife, and Lot his nephew, and all their possessions which they had accumulated, and the persons which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanite was then in the land. And the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your descendants I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Then he proceeded from there to the mountain on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. Abram journeyed on, continuing towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. And it came about when he came near to Egypt that he said to Sarai, his wife, See now, I know that you are a beautiful woman. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will let you live. Please say you are my sister. Now in fact, she was, of course, his half-sister, so he told half the truth. So that it may go well with me because of you and that I may live on account of you. It came about when Abram came to, into Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Therefore he treated Abram well for her sake, and gave him sheep and oxen and donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But the Lord struck Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Then Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they escorted him away with his wife and all that belonged to him. So Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot with him. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and he went on his journey from the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he'd made there formerly, and Abram called on the name of the Lord. Then a dispute emerges between the herdsmen of Abram and the herd of Lot. After it's resolved by parting the land, we read in verse 17, God again speaks to Abram, Arise, walk about the land through its length and breadth, for I will give it to you. Then Abram moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord.
Breshit, again, means in the beginning. Most people simply limit this idea of the beginning to the creation, the beginning of God's plan for man. While that is true, there is much more to in the beginning, to Genesis, than the creation. Abraham is God's beginning to deal with Israel and the Jewish people, and through them will ultimately come the Messiah and the church. God gives Abraham five eternal promises. God promises that he would have a land. God promises that he would have a great name. And he does. He's the father of all who believed. He's the patriarch of Jews, Arabs, and Christians. Arabs calling him Ibrahim. Jews calling him Abba Abraham, Abraham our father. So he has his land and a great name. God then promises that God would bless the ones who bless Abraham and curse the ones who curse him. And finally and ultimately, we see that all the families, the tribes, the peoples of the earth will be blessed through Abraham. These promises are, of course, reiterated through his descendants, Isaac and Jacob. The promise of the land is eternal. Now, there are those who believe in an error or a deception called replacement theology, which completely contradicts the teaching of Jesus in the New Testament and the teaching of St. Paul in Romans 9, 10, and 11. If God is finished with the Jews, there is no reason God should not be finished with the church. In fact, we read in Jeremiah 31, 31, when the new covenant, the new testament, the new covenant is promised, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the one I made with their fathers. The new covenant was made with Israel and the Jews, not the church. God never made a covenant with the church. Jesus never made one with the church. As Paul tells us in Romans 11, non-Jews who accept the Jewish Messiah through the new birth are grafted in to Israel in a spiritual sense, while Jews rejecting their Messiah are cut off from it, but the covenant remains the same. If God is finished with the Jews, he's automatically finished with the church because he never made a covenant with the church to begin with. It depends on God's covenant promise to Israel and this dates back to Father Abraham, the father of all who believe. The promises are again reiterated, and they're passed on to Isaac and Jacob. Islam, of course, makes arguments that they're passed on not through Isaac and Jacob, but through Ishmael, and ultimately through Esau, who become the arguments of Islam. Nonetheless, the Bible tells us a different story about Father Abraham. Those who would curse him, God would curse. Those who would bless him, God would bless. There is no doubt in my mind that the judgment of God would have fallen a long time ago on the United States of America had America not blessed Israel. The immorality in America alone warrants the wrath and judgment of God. The genocidal atrocity of abortion warrants the wrath of God being poured out on the United States, on the United Kingdom, and the other Protestant democracies. But America has blessed Israel. The fact that America sends the most missionaries to the most countries, not always for the better, but often, and the fact that America has consistently blessed Israel is a reason God has withheld his wrath. If you've been to Amsterdam, Holland, you realize if God does not destroy Amsterdam, he owes Sodom and Gomorrah something of an apology. It's such a wicked city, yet Holland protected Jews in the Holocaust. God will bless those who bless Abraham's and his descendants, not for the sake of his descendants, but for the sake of his covenant promise. He cannot deny himself. 
The validity of a covenant never depends on the infidelity of man, but only on the faithfulness of God. And this has been consistently true. Those who have cursed Abraham and his descendants have come under divine wrath. We see what happened to the Soviet Empire. We see that Germany built a wall around the Jewish ghettos. Any Jew climbing over the wall was machine gunned, and so a wall was built around the great capital of the glorious Reich. And any German climbing over that wall was machine gunned. Not until Hess, the last German responsible for the Holocaust and the Blitzkrieg, died in Spandau prison did one brick of that wall come down. We see what happens consistently to world empires who have persecuted the Jews, be it the ancient Babylonians, be it the Assyrians, be it Egypt in the Exodus. We saw what happened throughout the Middle Ages with the Black Death and Bubonic Plague. Anyone who has ever persecuted the true believing evangelical church, or anyone who has ever persecuted the Jews, has come under the wrath and judgment of God. They touch the apple of God's eye. There are two kinds of people the Bible calls God's chosen. Jews and born-again believers. They are Abraham's descendants, anthropologically, and Abraham's descendants by faith. The Arab nations are also indirectly descended from Abraham, and the book of Genesis reveals a prophetic agenda for the Arab nations as well. But having looked at this, let's understand Abraham. He's the patriarch, the father of all who believe. And we just read the story, the account of his journey. His journey is a journey like ours. As the patriarch, he's also the archetype. He's the first of a kind. What happens to him happens to us. We read that Abraham, for instance, came out of Egypt. He goes into Egypt in a famine. God judges Pharaoh, and he comes out of Egypt, bringing the wealth of Egypt with him. Later on, Abraham's physical descendants come out of Egypt bringing the wealth of Egypt with them when God judges Pharaoh. What happened to Abraham happens to the children of Israel, his literal physical genetic descendants. So too, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we read that in our salvation, Paul tells us we come out of Egypt. Egypt being a metaphor for the world. Pharaoh being a symbol of Satan, the god of the world. And as Moses made a covenant with blood and sprinkled it on the people and brought them out of Egypt through the water into the promised land is a picture of the way the Lord Jesus covers us with the blood of the Lamb, his blood, brings us through baptism into heaven. We come out of Egypt. Ultimately, the coming out of Egypt is the rapture and resurrection. Those same judgments that we read about in the book of Revelation simply recapitulate or replay the judgments on the book of Exodus. They are, of course, commemorated in the Jewish Passover to this day with the throwing the drops of wine into the, into the saucer plate. Choshek, darkness, Tvardaya, frogs, dam, blood. What happened to Egypt is a microcosm and a type of what will happen to the entire planet. The way the magicians of Pharaoh were able to mimic, counterfeit the miracles of Moses and Aaron is the way the Antichrist and false prophet will mimic or counterfeit the miracles of Jesus and his witnesses. And ultimately, of course, Pharaoh, a man worshipped as God, typifies the Antichrist to come. In the Exodus, when they come out of Egypt, they bring Joseph's bones with them. Why? Because the dead in Christ rise first. We come out together. We've discussed this many times on other tapes and on other Bible teachings. Coming out of Egypt. Abraham came out of Egypt. The children of Israel come out of Egypt. In our salvation, we come out of Egypt. 
and ultimately in the rapture and resurrection we come out of Egypt. But there's one more. Many people have not understood the way St. Matthew, in his formula citations and the nativity narrative, handles Old Testament prophecy. He refers to the Exodus, back to the Exodus in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. Out of Egypt I called my son. He takes something which in its exegetical context applies to Egypt and the Exodus, but says it's fulfilled in Jesus. In the Jewish way of understanding prophecy, it's based on something called Midrash, Midrash. The writers of the New Testament used Jewish Midrash. If you want to understand why the New Testament handles the Old Testament the way it does, we must simply look at the Dead Sea Scrolls. Paul was a rabbi, Jesus was a rabbi. St. Matthew was influenced by the rabbinic methods of exegesis of his day. They used Midrash. In the Western prophecy, or the Western view of prophecy, it is a prediction and a fulfillment. But eschatological prophecy and messianic prophecy in Scripture is not simply a prediction and a fulfillment, it is a pattern. Multiple fulfillments. But each fulfillment is a type or a shadow of the final, ultimate one. Hence, looking at prophecy this way, we can understand why Matthew says, Out of Egypt I called my son. God judges a wicked king, Herod, the way he judged Pharaoh. And Israel comes out in the form of Jesus. When the Bible says, Israel, my glory, it is not simply about Israel, but is metaphoric for the Messiah. And so, we come out of Egypt, the Messiah came out of Egypt, in the Exodus, the children of Israel come out of Egypt, but it begins with Abraham, he came out of Egypt. He's the patriarch, he's the archetype, the father of all who believed. But his story does not begin in Egypt, neither does it begin in biblical Israel. It begins in Ur of the Chaldees, in Ur of the Chaldees. There is a Jewish legend. We have no idea of knowing if it has any historical basis. It may simply be a myth. But we are told his father, Terah, was an idolmonger, an idolmaker. His father was an idolmonger. And in his youth, Abraham took a hammer, a patish in Hebrew, and smashed all of his father's idols except for one. And he took the hammer and put it in the hand of the remaining idol. And his father Terah came in and said to Abraham, or Avram, who destroyed all of these gods? And Avram said, well, that one did, the one holding the hammer. And his father said, that's impossible. It's only a piece of stone with no life or breath or power in it. And Avram said, exactly, father, exactly. His father was certainly an idolmonger. In the place where the Tower of Babel had been built, in a place where Man's super-rebellion against God took place in the story in Genesis of the Tower of Babel in the days of Semiramis and Nimrod. It is from here Abraham comes. Abraham is called by God. However, the book of Genesis tells us the story commences here in Haran, Haran, which would today be well north of Israel, up today in northern Syria, near the Roshmana excavations. But the book of Acts tells us something different. In the book of Acts chapter 7, in Stephen's apology, his apologia before he's martyred, St. Stephen tells us other things that were popularly known to the Jewish people, not specifically recorded in the book of Genesis. 
The book of Acts tells us, in verse 2, when Stephen is facing martyrdom, he says, Hear me, brethren and fathers. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come to the land I will show you. Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to the country in which you are now living. But he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot of ground, and yet even when he had no child, he promised him he would give it to him as a possession and to his descendants after him. Abraham lived in a, as a sojourner and a land promised to him. Jesus said, the meek shall inherit the earth. The early church, certainly the pre-Nicene church, was pre-millennial. The inventions of amillennialism and post-millennialism are things that were contrived to facilitate Constantine's Christianization or pseudo-Christianization of the Roman Empire. Jesus' kingdom was not of this world. The meek shall inherit the earth. How can the meek inherit the earth if there isn't one? Uh, the early church was premillennial. We live as sojourners in a land promised to us, even though we don't get it now in this life, in this world. So Abraham, being the archetype or the patriarch of this, foreshadows our experience. He lives in a land promised to him, but does not receive it in his lifetime. God calls him not in Haran, as Genesis tells us initially. God calls him there, but not initially. God initially calls him from his early childhood in Ur of the Chaldees in Mesopotamia, the area between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in modern Iraq. That's where he was called. God tells him to leave his family, but he doesn't. He goes with his father up to Haran. Only with the death of his father Terah in Haran does he respond to God's call. Yet God had been calling him since the earliest days of his youth. The same is again true for us as it is for our patriarch and archetype, Father Abraham. When someone responds to the call of God, finally, they come to realize that God was drawing them their entire lives, even from the earliest days of their youth. When someone becomes born again and comes to know Jesus, the one promised through Abraham, salvation would come through the seed of Abraham, the Messiah. And through him, all the peoples of the earth, the families, the tribes would be blessed because the Messiah of the Jews, the seed of Abraham, would be the savior of all nations and all races. When someone comes into the promise to Abraham, the new birth through the seed of Abraham, when someone is born again, not only does their future make sense, not only does their present make sense, but even their past makes sense. They understand why they traveled on life's journey the way they did. In retrospect, after someone comes to faith in Jesus, they come to understand it was God drawing them, even from their childhood, even from their mother's womb, even from the earliest days of their youth. The things you can't quantify, the thoughts that went through your head when you were in bed at night before you fell asleep, impressions you've had. This was the Holy Spirit trying to quicken our spirit to a living faith in Jesus. God was drawing us. God convicted Abraham and told him what to do, but he was held back by family. Now again, he's the archetype, the patriarch. Look at his physical descendants, both the Jews and Arabs. I've been an evangelist to the Jews for 
approximately 30 years, my wife and children are Israeli Jewish believers in Jesus. One of the most common problems I've had in the years I spent in the Middle East, and one of the most common problems I've had now in leading Jews and Arabs to Christ out of the Islamic faith, is family pressure, family loyalty. My wife's parents were Holocaust survivors. Most of the family were killed. Now, the Holocaust was perpetrated in the name of people falsely pretending to be Christian. The Spanish Inquisitions, the terrible genocidal atrocities against Jews by the Roman Catholic and the Greek Orthodox churches, Luther's polemics against the Jews, it looks like treason. Family holding back. Of course, Jesus never taught anti-Semitism. But people can't see that. Difficult. What I tell Jewish people is this. An Orthodox Jew put on a yarmulke, a kippah, skullcap, and fired two bullets into the back of his Prime Minister, Itzhak Rabin, and murdered him. Assassination. A political assassination. He did it in the name of Moses and the Torah. Can I blame Moses and the Torah for the assassination of Itzhak Rabin? Well, don't blame Jesus for the Holocaust or for the Spanish Inquisition. It's not what he taught. What people did in his name was not what he taught. Yet, family holds back. I know Jewish people, when they become believers in Jesus, their family have had funerals for them and actually sat shiva for them. We had a joke when I lived in Israel, but it was not a joke, it was true. If an Orthodox Jew came to faith in Jesus, his family would hold a funeral for him. If a Muslim came to faith in Jesus, his family would also hold a funeral for him, only he would be at it. It was true. But it goes back to Abraham. The idea of family holding back. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. It wasn't until the death of his father that he responds to God's call. So often it requires a traumatic event, maybe a bereavement in someone's life to make them respond to the call of God. The Bible tells us that the Lord is near. He's close to those who are in mourning or the ones who mourn. When people are confronted with the death of a loved one, they become acutely aware of their own mortality and begin to think about things eternal. They're much more open to the gospel. But the only good thing about a funeral is it's an opportunity to proclaim the way of eternal life to the unsaved who come to the funeral. And so it was with Abraham. It took the death, the jolt, the experience of bereavement, in his case, or it could be some other crisis of life, to cause someone to respond to the call of God. But ultimately respond he does, even though God had been drawing him all along. When someone comes to faith in Jesus, it is the, simply the climax of God having drawn them all along. He responds and he moves into the land of promise, biblical Israel, and his first stop is Shechem. Shechem. The word Shechem is related to shoulder. Shoulder, where one would carry a burden. If you've been in the Middle East, you'd see people carrying burdens sometimes on their head, but on their shoulder. Now, it's used not so mainly in the anatomical sense, but more in the poetic sense of carrying it on your shoulders. He comes to Shechem under the oak of Moray. Underneath the oak of Moray. Moray is the modern Hebrew word for a teacher, but it is the ancient Hebrew word for knowledge particularly some kind of divine knowledge, spiritual knowledge, or knowledge of God. Now, before we can go any further, we have to understand this biblical motif of dwelling under trees. 
Whenever you see someone dwelling under a tree in the Bible, it is indicative of their spiritual state in some way in biblical typology. Before King Saul was killed for his backsliding, he and his occult practice and his necromancy, he was under the tamarisk tree. When Elijah was in a despondent state, he was under the juniper tree. But in John chapter 1, Jesus saw Nathanael, he said, I saw you under the fig tree. We have to understand this. I've explained this many times, but the fig tree in Judaism is, among other things, a symbol of the tree of life, what we call the Eitz Hayim, the tree of life. Now, there's much we can say about the fig tree biblically. However, if a Jewish believer, if a Jewish Christian, a Messianic Jew at the end of the first century was reading John's Gospel, he would have read it quite differently than we do. He would have said it is a midrash, a midrash, again, on the creation. The new creation in Genesis, the uh, new creation in John, is a midrash on the creation in Genesis. In the creation in Genesis, God walks the earth. Adam and Eve hear God walking in the garden. That was a Christophany, an Old Testament and fleshman of Christ. God walks the earth in the creation in Genesis, so God walks the earth in the new creation in John. We see that God separates the light from dark in the creation in Genesis. So God separates the light from dark in the new creation in John. The people did not comprehend the light. The darkness did not overcome it or comprehend it. Okay. We see in the creation in Genesis, there was the small light and the great light. And so in the new creation in John, we have the small light and the great light. Yochanan Hamatbil, the little light, John the Baptist, and Yeshua HaMashiach, the great light, the Lord Jesus. In the creation in Genesis, we see that God does a creative miracle with water on the third day. And so Jesus begins his public ministry at Cana. And we read in John chapter 2, verse 1, it was the third day. God does a creative miracle with water on the third day. God began his first plan for mankind with a marital union between Adam and Eve. And so God begins his second plan for mankind at a marital union at the wedding at Cana. One is a midrash on the other. You have not just a literary parallelism, but a theological parallelism. The spirit moves on the water in Genesis and brings forth the creation. And so in the Gospel of John, born of water and the Spirit, the Spirit moves on the water and brings forth the new creation in John. You have this relationship of creation in Genesis, new creation in John, and recreation in Revelation. And of course, it was the same John, I believe, who wrote Revelation as one who wrote the Gospel. Nonetheless, let's go even further. In the garden, you had the tree of life, again in Judaism represented by a fig tree. So when Jesus says to Nathanael in John chapter 1, I saw you under the fig tree, Jesus was not simply telling Nathanael, I saw you under a literal fig tree, although he did see him under a literal fig tree. He was saying something much more than that. He was saying, I saw you from the garden, from the creation, from the foundation of the world. I'm not a Calvinist in any sense. I don't believe Calvinism is biblical. However, the Bible does say those whom he foreknew from the foundation of the world. When you're born again, Jesus already knew you. He saw you under the fig tree, under the tree of life. Being under a tree is indicative of someone's spiritual state. He comes to his first knowledge of God, and there he builds an altar, a mesabeach, an altar. 
An altar is the most important type or symbol of the cross in the Old Testament. We've talked about this many times. The altar is where blood atonement was made. The cross is always central. We know from the epistle to the Hebrews that when the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, taking my sin and yours and dying in our place, that he was the high priest making atonement for sin on the altar. So the altar is there. At a time of crisis, he responds to the call of God, even though God had been drawing him all along. And he comes to his first knowledge of God. He comes to the altar, to the cross. No sacrifice, no progress. So far, so good. He comes to this personal relationship with God at a hill not far from the present city of Nablus. And on top of this hill was the Ilon More. Ilon More. If you come with us on one of our Bible study tours of Israel, we always bring the people to Ilon More in Samaria. From there, he proceeds south. South. South to a place called Bet El. Bet El. Bet El in Hebrew means the house of God. The house of God. At Bethel, he turns his back on the east where he came from and faces the west. You always see this idea in biblical sacrifice of turning one's back on the east and facing the west. When the high priest made sacrifices in the temple, he had to turn his back on the east and face the west to bring the sacrifice. And so we see he turns his back on the east, where he came from, the direction he came from. That was, to the east, a place called Ai. Ai, to the immediate east, was called Ai. Ai essentially means a heap of ruins. A heap of ruins. It would later feature, of course, in the conquest of Joshua, but it means a heap of ruins. When you come to Jesus... When you come the way Abraham came, to the seed of Abraham, to the promise of Abraham, to the redemption promised to and through Abraham, you come and then you come to God's house. You come to meet other believers. You come to his house. In his house, you turn your back on where you came from. Our past becomes a heap of ruins. When I was a teenager, I was taking LSD all the time in my early teens, and then by the time I was in my late teens, I was addicted to cocaine. That's a heap of ruins. I don't need psychology or 12-step programs. I'm a recovering cocaine addict. I'm a recovering alcoholic. I'm a recovering compulsive gambler. I'm in recovery. I'm not in recovery. That drug addict is dead. I'm a new creation in Christ. It's a heap of ruins. It's a heap of ruins. It's dead. We turn our back on where we came from. We come to the cross. We come to the altar. Everything goes on the altar. Old relationships, old interests. The things of the world that always we treasured become a heap of ruins. Our only dealings with the world is to be in it but not of it. We may still keep our old acquaintances, but our old friends are no longer friends. They're just acquaintances. Our new friends are in the church. Our old acquaintances, they may still be business associates or social acquaintances, but our dealings with them are basically to try to witness to them, <laughs> to try to get them saved. Or what we have to practically deal with them if they're clients or customers or something of this nature. 
It all goes on the altar. It all goes on the altar. I went through an incubation period when I was first saved for two and a half to three years. I could not listen to any kind of music except traditional hymns. I particularly couldn't listen to rock or pop music or to classical music because I associated Tchaikovsky and Mozart or Pink Floyd or the Beatles with drugs and sex. I used to listen to that kind of music when I was stoned on drugs and when I was in, engaging in immorality. Uh, it all became a heap of runes. Now, as, after I grew in my faith, it just became music to me. It doesn't bother me anymore. But I had to go through an incubation period where I just kept away from such things because I, it just reminded me of my old nature too much. It was too much a part of a lifestyle that was ungodly. It became a heap of runes. These things go to the, go to the altar. They go to the cross. You stop sleeping around. You stop smoking cigarettes. You stop getting drunk. You stop living immorally. These things become a heap of runes. Our old nature, our old interests, even our careers. I was going to be a scientist, working biomedical research. Now I would have done that if God wanted me to, but it's something that had to go on the altar. I said, Lord, do you want me to continue in this, or do you want me to do something else? Not only does our bad points, our sin, get nailed to the cross, we get nailed to the cross. The way God deals with our sin is he deals with the sinner. Everything has to be crucified. Then he resurrects and gives us what he wants us to have. Maybe he will want you in some secular industry. Maybe he will want you in some secular profession as his witness within it. That's fine. But once the old man has been crucified, now you're in it but not of it. It all goes to the cross. You have to build an altar. It becomes a heap of ruins. We turn our back on it. His next stop should have been Hebron. But it wasn't. Now understand something about Bethel. The house of God. Turn with me very briefly, please, to the epistle of Peter, of St. Peter. In 1 Peter, we read the following in chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, or a holy house, for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. When the Bible says Jesus Christ, it's him on earth. When it says Christ Jesus, it's him in eternity. He came down and became our high priest. He took our sin and identified with us. We are a holy house, the oikos hegios. We are the bricks, the stones of which the holy house is built. The church is not a physical building, even though it may meet in a physical building. It is a spiritual building, and we are the stones of it. That is what Bethel means. We are the stones. Coming down... He should have gone to Hebron, but he doesn't. Instead, something happens. He finds himself in a famine situation, as his descendants later would. And so he goes to Egypt. Again, in the Bible, Egypt is a metaphor for the world. We never go to Egypt without consulting God. Look very briefly, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 30, Ishayahu Hanavi. Isaiah, chapter 30, verse 1. 
In the days of Isaiah, King Hezekiah was trapped between two superpowers. What was Assyria over this way on his east and Egypt on his west, and Israel was in the middle. It was sort of like Poland was always caught up in the wars between Russia and Germany just because of its unfortunate location, caught between two nations bigger than itself and the poor Polish people have had an ugly history as a result of it. Well, Israel was in a similar situation. They were caught between the two conflicting superpowers, as it were, in ancient terms. And King Hezekiah was being pressured to go to Egypt for help to make an alliance against Assyria, who had already conquered the north, the northern ten tribes. But Isaiah warns those who are doing this and trying to advise him to do this. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine and make an alliance, but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin, who proceed down to Egypt without consulting me to take refuge in the safety of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. Therefore the safety of Pharaoh will be to your disgrace, and the shelter in the shadow of Egypt to your humiliation. Whenever you go to Egypt without consulting God, you trust in Pharaoh. Pharaoh is the God of this world metaphor for Satan, it'll turn to your disgrace and humiliation. There is no such thing as a successful backslider. We never go to Egypt without consulting God. You go to the world's legal system, its financial system, its education system, its health system. You go to the world, make sure you go to God first. Now, again, in it but not of it. Jesus was told to go to Egypt or his parents were told to take him there. No one would suggest God cannot guide us to go to Egypt, but not to be of Egypt. It's not our home. The problem is relying on it. Chapter 31 of Isaiah says the same thing. Woe to those who go to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many, and horsemen because they are very strong, but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel. And we see what happens. The Egyptians are men, in verse 3, and not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand, and he who helps will stumble, and the one who has helped will fall. They'll all come to an end together. There's no refuge in Egypt. In a time of crisis, the natural propensity of the old nature is to go to the world and the things that the world or the flesh considers strong. We understand this from the parable of Jesus in Matthew chapter 13, the sower and the seed. It was the cares of this world, the thorns, that choked off one of the seeds that began to grow. There's two ways the devil will get people to backslide, to fall away from the Lord, after they've come to know the Lord. One is the passions of youth, or the lust of the flesh, or something of that nature. But if the devil cannot get someone to go back into sin for the sake of the sin, and for the fleeting pleasures of sin, the devil will then attempt something else. Adverse circumstances of life. He'll create the illusion that God has somehow abandoned us. We have to fend for ourselves and take matters into our own hands. He's very good at doing that. If God had told Abraham to go to Egypt, it would have been one thing. God told, had God had told him, it would have been one thing. But God did not tell him. He went on his own initiative. Never get involved with the world unless God so guides and directs you. Even in our employment, 
Does the Lord want me to have that job? Lord, close the door if it's not of you. Open the one you want us to have. Lord, do you want me to get medical attention? Lord, do you want me to go to, a, to, to, to the legal system? Do you want me to go to the financial system? Whenever you get involved with the world, have the wisdom and guidance and direction of the Lord. The world is in the power of Pharaoh and the power of the wicked one. If we do, we're to be in it, but not of it. If you go without the guidance and direction and protection of the Lord, you become like it. You begin to lie. You begin to connive. And that is what Abraham did. And as Isaiah said, he wound up in a state of humiliation. There is no such thing as a successful backslider. Whatever someone backslides into will turn against them. You cannot meet Jesus Christ and be the same. You can either be better or worse, but you can't be the same. Once somebody is truly saved, truly born again, they can never go back to be what they were. It just doesn't work. A dog may return to its vomit, but it won't taste the same. Uh, it just doesn't work that way. After you come to know Jesus, you're either going to be conspicuously better or conspicuously worse, but you can't be the same. He became worse. He told a half-truth, a de facto lie regarding his wife, cum half-sister Sarah. He was willing to sexually give his wife over to another man, and he did so. He gained wealth from it. He was paid for it. He seemed to profit from it, but he was afraid to, for his own neck. His main motives may not have been the profit, but he wanted Pharaoh to treat him well, however. Maybe he was afraid that Pharaoh would have killed him to take his wife. Whatever. He was in the world without God telling him to be there. When you go into the world without God's guidance and direction, don't expect his protection. He wound up lying and giving his wife over to another man in a sexual way. It's amazing how low somebody can go. Abraham was what we call in Hebrew, Didiah, the friend of God. He knew God in an Old Testament sense. He had a relationship with God. God called him. God's entire prophetic agenda and salvific agenda for the salvation of man was going to come through Abraham. Yet this great patriarch, this great saint, this great hero, going into Egypt, reached a depth of moral depravity that would be almost unfathomable. How can you give your wife over to another man in that manner? But the father of all who believed did. This is one of the things that distinguishes the Bible from other books that pretend to be holy writ. The Book of Mormon makes Joseph Smith absolutely impeccably righteous. He wasn't. He was a false prophet and a conniver, but it paints him as an impeccably righteous man. The Koran paints Muhammad as an impeccably righteous man. This is called hagiography. These texts are hagiographic. They're written to make people seem like something more than they were. The Bible is not like that. The only one who is without sin is the Lord Jesus. The Bible shows us the faults and weaknesses of our greatest heroes, of our patriarchs, of our fathers, of our saints. It shows their sin, their weakness, their predisposition to fall in certain areas. It shows them for what they were. We're told Elijah was a man like us. Abraham did something unspeakable. King David did something more unspeakable. Yet in their heart of heart, they loved God and God loved them. 
and it did not change the calling of God in their lives. Quite a situation. The Bible is not hagiographic. The Bible is realistic and honest. It shows us what kind of a man Abraham was. He could not be the father of all who believe if he was something more or different than we are. <laughs> but if someone goes into Egypt, the depth they will plunge to will be almost unbelievable. They'll be much worse in their moral conduct than they were before they were saved. And they will ultimately, one way or another, end up in a state of humiliation, as Isaiah warned and has happened to Father Abraham. Just think of the parable of the prodigal son. He wound up in a state of humiliation, groveling with the swine, crawling back on his hands and knees to his father, who was willing to receive him. When someone falls away, God will do everything he can to get that person back. He'll bring calamity upon them. Jesus said, cast not your pearls before swine. People who mock the gospel, you'll wind up groveling with them if you fall away from the Lord. You'll become right the same in the midst of people who want nothing to do with the gospel. You'll be feeding with the swine. People who you shouldn't even cast your pearls before. You'll wind up in that kind of a state. The Father is loving and he'll take you back. But why blow your inheritance? Why put yourself and your father through all that? It's just a waste of time. I've known people who spent years of their lives, of their Christian lives, in Egypt. The longer you spend in Egypt, the harder it is to get out. The longer you spend in Egypt, the bigger mess it takes to prompt you to even want to get out. It has a strong grip. Woe to those who go down to Egypt. So there they were. The old creation loves Egypt. This is what we read in Numbers 11, chapter 4. Egypt, the world. When we're in trouble, the old creation wants to look to the things that the world considers strong. And so Abraham is there when he winds up humiliated, gets himself in a real mess, gets his wife in a mess. It affects his family. Backsliding affects families. Don't think it only affects you. It'll affect your wife, your children, your husband. Siblings, friends. And he winds up coming all the way back through the wilderness, through the Negev, through the Sinai. All the way back to Bethel. He picks up where he left off. How much more progress could he have made by now had he stayed on the course God ordained for him? But instead he gets sidetracked in Egypt. The longer you spend in Egypt, the harder it is to get out, and the further you go into Egypt, the further you have to come back. And you pick up where you left off. <laughs> you haven't grown one bit. You could have grown immensely. You could have made a lot more progress. God could be using you by now, but instead, you wound up in a state of humiliation, groveling with the swine. Once he gets back to Bethel and gets his life reorganized and God puts his hand on him, he proceeds south to Hebron. Hebron comes from the Hebrew word Hevra. It's related to the Hebrew word, or one of the Hebrew words, for fellowship. Hitabrut. Hitabrut. The infinitive in Hebrew to fellowship is Hitaber. Hitabrut. Hitabrut literally means 
bricks cemented together. It's one thing to come to church. It's something very different to come to fellowship. However, to come to fellowship, you have to build an altar. You have to go again to the cross, a deeper work of the cross. No sacrifice, no progress. However, when he comes to Hebron, he's dwelling under the oaks of Mamre, Mamre, near a place called Kiryat Arba, on the outskirts of Hebron. Mamre is the Hebrew word for vigor. Not just strength, but a vigorous kind of strength. It is only when Abraham was dwelling under the oaks of Mamre at Hebron that he was in a position to rescue Lot and his kinsmen. Now notice God promised Abraham something. Abraham did not have to covet the promise of God. He had it. And so when the dispute emerged between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds or the herdsmen of Abraham, Abraham said, take your pick. Have what you want. I know what God's going to give me. I'll let God give it to me. I'm not going to contend for it. Never be jealous over another person's ministry and never think you have to try to attain what God has given you. When God gives, God's going to give it. It's Lot who wound up in a real mess, not just once, but twice. Lot thought in a carnal manner. The first time Abraham has to rescue him. The second time, God himself has to rescue him down at Sodom and Gomorrah. He was driven by a wrong motive. Abraham, by this time, learned to have a right motive. And it's only when he comes to Hebron, to the place of fellowship, that he comes into the kind of strength he needed to rescue his kinsmen. We need to think of this seriously, the rescue of our kinsmen. Western society is being overtaken by immorality. Not just pornography on television, but a social acceptance of homosexuality, lesbianism, homosexual adoption, lesbian artificial insemination, teaching children these things are normal. Society is being overrun by Eastern religion, even demonic religions such as Islam, New Age, superstition, the occult. Society is no longer secular humanist, it's post-Christian neo-pagan. The stage is being set for the advent of Antichrist. However, our kinsmen are in bondage. How important is the salvation of our families? You know, it's quite a question. Right now, the church does not have the strength or the vigor to take on the rise of militant homosexuality. On the contrary, one perverted denomination after another. The Anglicans, perverted. Presbyterians, perverted. Methodists, perverted. Are ordaining homosexuals. The Uniting Church, perverted. How can a saved Christian be in a denomination that will ordain homosexuals and lesbians? If a man like Desmond Tutu wants to ordain lesbian priestesses into the Anglican communion, how can saved Christians be part of such wickedness? The church no longer has the power to stop it. In fact, the apostate church is part of it. People are getting in bed with Roman Catholicism. Quite a situation. St. Paul says forbidding marriage is a doctrine of demons. He says it plainly. If you outlaw marriage, that's a doctrine of demons. Once you outlaw what's natural, people will do something unnatural. And all over the world, it's the same story. Roman Catholic priests and nuns being caught in pedophile relationships with children. 
cardinals and bishops covering it up. The biggest, the biggest catch of child pornography in the world was in the Roman Catholic Seminary on the outskirts of Vienna, Austria. 40,000 pictures of priests having sex with little kids, much of it homosexual. The biggest, the biggest internet pornographer, 8,000 hours of child pornography put on the internet by Roman Catholic priests from St. Joseph's Parish in Newcastle, England. Cardinals, Boston, Massachusetts, London, England, Dublin, Ireland, Los Angeles, California, caught covering up and protecting pedophile priests and nuns at the expense of not protecting the children whose lives they destroy. In Massachusetts, 14 Roman Catholic nuns, 14 raping little deaf and dumb girls as young as five with foreign objects. And then a letter, a letter from the Vatican written by Pope John Paul II in 42 years the Vatican has known about pedophilia, homosexual and lesbian pedophilia by their clergy. And the Vatican instructing bishops to protect these criminals at the expense of not protecting the children. Pope John Paul II reiterates this through Cardinal Ratzinger just two years ago in 2001. And so you see the Salesian orders in Australia, for instance, transferring their priests abroad so they can't be prosecuted. In Birmingham, England, the Roman Catholic bishop transferred one priest seven times from parish to parish, and each one he molested children. And they knew it, and they were acting on Vatican instructions. What, what could be more evil? Jesus said, suffer the little children unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yet major evangelicals will accept Roman Catholicism as biblical, even though the Bible says it's a doctrine of demons. This kind of out-and-out -out perversion. It is unspeakable. The church is in a state where it has no moral credibility. The money preachers in the United States and South Africa have made born-again a household joke. These are religious con artists. The world sees right through it and mocks the gospel because of them. No, the church cannot stop the growth of cults like Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses by and large. It certainly cannot stop Islam. When Muslims see Christian and Protestant denominations ordaining homosexuals, to them it proves, in their thinking, we're morally superior to you. Islam must be true. We don't do this. The church is in a depraved state, a state where it has no chance to make a moral turnaround or moral impact in society. They can have hype, gimmicks, fads, but they can't have any victories. There's no firmness, there's no vigor, there's no strength. The church does not have what it takes to stand against child pornography, against radical homosexual and lesbian influence in the schools, against the influences of Darwinism. The church just does not have what it takes to stop these things. It requires being under the yokes of Mamre. It requires a fellowship. I was a missionary in the Middle East for years. There is not a church in the world that can take on a mosque and win. If you want to take on the mosque, you need a fellowship. A fellowship. Bricks cemented together. That was his goal. It was there and there alone at Hebron where his purpose and God's calling in his life came into being and fruition. It could only happen at Hebron, the place of fellowship. It was there, and there alone he rescued his kinsmen. That was his journey. A journey like ours.
Every person here today, every person watching this video, wherever you are in the world, is somewhere on this map. Even a little kid, a little child, they may not know it yet. Their parents may be Christian, maybe their parents aren't Christian. Maybe they have a grandmother praying for their salvation. They're an herb of the Chaldees. Even now from their childhood, from the earliest days of their youth, God is drawing them to salvation in himself. He's calling them. It may split their family. It may ultimately require a sacrifice. It may ultimately require a crisis or a bereavement to make that person respond to God's call of salvation. But God calls even a little child in Sunday school, hearing the stories of David and Goliath and Jesus walking on the water. God is even drawing them now to salvation. Perhaps you're someone at Haran. You have come to the point of crisis. You know God has been calling. You know God has been drawing. There is much to Christianity. There is much to the Judeo-Christian faith of the Bible. Much. It's like entering a room. It's been described this way. In a room there may be many things. Tables, lamps, chairs, carpets, curtains, and so forth. But coming through the door and entering the room is simple. Once you get into the room, you can begin to discover the other things. This is discipleship. You become a disciple. But first you have to become a believer. You have to enter through the door. And Jesus tells us in John chapter 10, he is the door. He's the way in. You come into the sheepfold with the sheep of the Lord. Jesus is the shepherd. Becoming a Christian is quite simple. God created us to be his children and his friends. He made us in his image and likeness. We rejected his love. We rebelled against his authority. And under the influences of Satan, we've become fallen. Satan has become the god of this world. There is a real, literal devil. And there is a real and literal hell. But nobody should ever have to go there. Jesus said, a day will come and he will tell people, go to the place prepared for Satan and his angels. Hell was not made for people. It was made for demons, for devils. You shouldn't go there. But as of right now, you are going there if you're not born again. There's only one way not to go there. All have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. Nobody is going to heaven unless Jesus saves them. No religion can save you. Not Talmudic Judaism, not Jehovah's Witnesses knocking on doors, not Catholics going to a novena, not sacraments. No religion can save you, only Jesus can. God becomes a man. And he was nailed to the cross in my place and in yours. He took our sin to give us his righteousness and rose from the dead to give us eternal life. That's the gospel. Salvation is in Jesus, not in religion, not in sacraments, not in good works. Christians don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we've been saved. It's not our righteousness. It's the righteousness of Jesus in us and through us. It's something different. It's imputed. It's given to us. The just for the unjust. Jesus died in my place. All the drugs I took, the women I slept with before I was married, every cigarette I smoked, every lie I told, he was nailed to the cross for that. And he was nailed to the cross for you. You have to turn from sin 
ask Him to forgive you, to come into your life and make you a new creation. He didn't just say, I died for you. He said, I died for you. Get up here and die with me. Build the altar. The old creation must go to the cross. It's quite simple to become a Christian. You ask him to forgive you and come into your life and make you God's child, and he will. But you've got to turn from the way you're living. You've got to turn your back on I. It's no good saying the words if you're not going to turn your back on where you came from. You come to Bethel. You meet with other believers in a church that believes the Bible. Not a church that ordains homosexual. Not a church that's ecumenical or alpha course. A church that's biblical. But it'll cost you something. The work of the cross. It's a relatively short distance to get from Shechem to Bethel. But it's a longer, more arduous journey to get from Bethel to Hebron through the mountains of Judah. It's easy to come to church, but it's much harder to come to fellowship. But before we get to Hebron, let's talk about one other kind of person. Those who are in Egypt. Those who knew the salvation of God, his blessing and calling. But either through the passions of youth, the lusts of the flesh, or the cares of this world, you wound up in Egypt under the domain of Pharaoh, seeking his protection, maybe seeking the pleasures of Egypt. There's no security in Egypt, and the pleasures of Egypt will turn upon you and devour you. You will become much worse than you ever were before you were saved. You will have no peace because now you've known the truth. There's only one thing to do. The longer you stay there, the worse it gets. You'll wind up groveling with the swine. Come back to your father and ask him to forgive you, and he will. Stop wasting your life. Stop wasting your youth. Come back to Jesus now. There's no success in Egypt. But then there's Hebron. What is the difference between Bethel and Hebron? Between coming to church and coming to fellowship? A big difference. Suppose I walked into a church and I said to the pastor, Pastor, it's a nice church you have, but all these bricks are missing in the wall. Where are all the missing bricks? Oh, here they are. They're stacked up in the middle of the floor. A brick is useless unless it's cemented into the structure. We are the living stones of the temple. People come to church. They sing the hymn. They pay the tithe. They sing to live morally. They do their bit. I visit churches all over the world, in both the developed world and the developing world, in the English-speaking world and in the non-English-speaking world. But all over the developed world, I pretty much see the same thing. 15% of the people do 85% of the praying. 15% of the people do 85% of the witnessing. 15% of the people do 85% of the ministry. They come to fellowship. The rest come to church. We have Shechem dwellers, Bethel dwellers, and Hebron dwellers. A Shechem dweller, that's easy. They're people who were saved. That's all they know. All they know is the gospel. They know that, but that's all. They become converts, not disciples. 
I used to do evangelism in Hyde Park in Speaker's Corner in London, England when I lived in central London. And the preachers knew each other. And there was one preacher there who had a, a long sandwich board that said, Christ died for our sins. Nice guy, his name was Robert. And I said, well, we were doing evangelism. Now today, much of Speaker's Corner is taken over by kooks and hecklers and Muslims who just want to heckle and mock. However, it was after a Sunday afternoon of doing evangelism, and I was going to the evening service at the church I attended over in Hammersmith in London. And I said, I have to get to church now, Robert. I'm going to church. God bless. See you next week, Lord willing. He said, what church you go to? I told him it was a Baptist church at the time. Even though I'm a moderate Pentecostal, I was going to a Baptist church because most of the Pentecostal churches were too crazy at the time. And I said to him, what church do you go to, Robert? And he said he went to a high Anglican church, a ritualistic church where the people weren't born again. I said, well, what do you go there for? He said, well, I went to an evangelical church once, but everybody was saved. There was nobody to preach to. He knew the gospel, but that's all he knew. He was a convert, but not a disciple. Shem dwellers. But then there are Bethel dwellers. Most Christians in the Western world are church-going people. That doesn't work. It's not wrong to come to Bethel when you're newly saved. But at some point, you have to press on to Hebron. Let's understand those who dwell at Bethel. Turn with me, please, to the book of Amos, very briefly. Amos Hanavi. Amos chapter 4, verse 4. Amos writes, Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithe every three days. Come to church and sin. Oh, I go to church. I pay my tithe. I've seen people come to church and pay their tithe or their offering, even take the Lord's Supper, walk out the door and light a cigarette and jump in a car with their unsaved boyfriend. Chapter 5, verse 5. Do not resort to Bethel or come to Gilgal, nor cross over to Beersheba. Gilgal will certainly go to captivity, Bethel will come to trouble. Gilgal was the place of rolling where the reproach was rolled away when they first crossed the Jordan. That's the place you come to first. If you stay in the place you were at first, you're going to wind up in trouble. And so it is with Bethel. Bethel will come to trouble. In times of persecution, a Bethel will not stand. A Hebron will. Churches don't stand in persecution. Fellowships do. Fellowships do. Bethel will come to trouble. Sooner or later, if it hasn't happened already, sooner or later, at some point in your Christian life and experience, sooner or later, if it hasn't happened already, the church will let you down. Let me tell you why the church will let you down. The church will let you down simply because it's a church, not a fellowship. The church will let you down because it's made up of people who are just like you and just like me. Church will let you down. Bet that will come to trouble. 
you have to come to fellowship. That requires building an altar. That requires a deeper work of the cross, of death to self, sacrifice unto the Lord. It's easy to pick out somebody who's a Bethel dweller instead of a Hebron dweller. They've been saved five years, ten years, twenty-five years, sometimes more, and they don't know if they're an eye, a foot, or a hand. They don't know what their gift is, what their ministry is. They don't know. They just come to church, do their bit, go home. Bethel will come to trouble. Hebron will come to victory. Hebron will come to a genuine deliverance from the power of wickedness. Hebron is the place of firmness, of vigor. Hebron is where you have to be situated to rescue your kinsmen. Hebron is the place to be. I don't know where you are. Maybe the little children, for sure we can say the small ones are in Ur. Maybe you're at Haran, you haven't come to the saving knowledge of God as yet, through Christ. Maybe you have and you're in Shechem. It's time to move on. Maybe you've moved on, but you've wound up in Egypt. It's time to get out of there before you wind up totally humiliated, or worse, dead in Egypt. But the likelihood is, you're in Bethel. You're a good church-going person. Bethel will come to trouble. It's time to stop going to church. Don't go to church anymore. Jesus doesn't want you to go to church. Jesus wants you to go to fellowship. Koinonia. Shoot the foot. Fellowship. Not church. Jesus wants you to go to fellowship. My name is Jacob Prask from Oriel Ministries. Thank you for listening. God bless and be blessed.